All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast where Bryce and Pizza Mind, my notorious compadre, are leading you all through Crypt Nation. Pete, how are we doing this morning? You look lovely. I feel lovely, Bryce, and that's because I have actually started to eat keto. Don't worry, I haven't forsaken pizza, but I've changed over to this uh, cauliflower kind of crust, which sounds terrible, but it's actually not that bad depending on where you get it from. I still get that cheesy goodness, but without that lagging effect that really clouds my judgment. And, that, and that's the crazy thing, because when you told me you were going keto, I said, Pete, we've known each other forever, and I've never seen you eat a vegetable. Now you're telling me you're going to eat cauliflower pizza. Pete, I'm scared that your body won't be able to process vegetable enzymes. And how did it go? You know, without being too graphic. All I feel is much more energy. That's the only effect it's had on me so far. I feel like I'm about 10 years younger, um, but I will have a cheat reel pizza every now and then. But what I really want to talk about is, uh, you know, they talk about new year, new me. Crypto is like new quarter, new me. Every quarter is so vastly different. This thing's open 24-7. It's the Wild West. Um, but we're seeing a lot of evolution almost as fast as Singapore's development. That's how fast crypto's been moving in Q2. So today with us in the studio, live and in person, we have Joshua Frank from the Thai who has written with uh, Guy Hirsch of eToro, a quarterly report. Guy is with us uh, from New York. New York. In Israel. In Israel. Oh, my goodness. So we've, we've got everyone from all over the place here. We're going to be talking about quarter two and all the crazy things that have happened then. Guy, Josh, welcome to Crypto 101. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So, guys... Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump in real quick. But for anybody who hasn't met you before, uh, Guy, give us a quick high-level overview of your role over at eToro. And, you know, I think you've got a really interesting story of actually how you came into the industry. Um, so catch us up, give us some background, and then we'll jump into the report. Sure. So I've been with eToro since December of 2017. I'm the U.S. Managing Director my job is to build and grow the eToro business in the US. Uh, and the, the, what you kind of uh, mentioned there is one of my early, early interactions, uh, business interactions with crypto or with Bitcoin more specifically was when I was leading the retail innovation program for Samsung North America, we're talking 2004 sorry, 2014, and I was trying to convince Samsung as part of, uh, I was developing a point of sale system at the time uh, that was supposed to be used in a, in a concept store in Soho. Um, and I was trying to convince them to accept Bitcoin as a form of um, basically being competitive to, to Apple stores and be, be the first to be able to sell phones um, and accept Bitcoin. And... Uh, yeah, I, uh, I wasn't successful, obviously, but that was the, uh, the, the genesis of, uh, of my business interest in, in crypto, and uh, it, it grew ever since. Awesome. Well, you've been a frontier or a pioneer of the frontier here for a long time. Uh, and Mr. Joshua Frank, live and in person with us today in the studio, um, you do so much in the industry. You don't just write reports. Uh, you don't just 
uh, you know, collect massive amounts of sentiment data and market data. You really just run the gamut. So give us a, a high level overview before we dive into the, you know, the state of the market report that you and Guy have just been working on for the past several months. Uh, who are you and uh, how'd you kind of find yourself getting into crypto? And Yeah, thanks again for having me on. So yeah, I was working uh, at a boring traditional financial technology job and uh, was trading cryptocurrency on the side in early uh, early you know 2017 uh, as well building uh, you know sophisticated models to trade uh, equities using sentiment data uh, kind of put two and two together was like hey you know if you can take uh, you know social data to predict the movement of traditional assets that have fundamentals you know for example Microsoft has revenue and dividends well then you can take that same data and bring it into crypto where there's nothing fundamentally driving the value of these assets. And that's kind of how I you know, got into the space, uh, started the tie, um, you know, focusing initially on sentiment data, which is a massive, massive part of our business and what we do, but have since expanded to build out you know, SigDev, which is the first you know, corporate actions feed for crypto, which basically alerts everybody from the biggest publications in crypto to hedge funds, to regulators, to law firms, about the most actionable and important information in the space. Uh, but we, we, we provide a, a variety of things, but very much focused on making data actionable for investors. So there's a lot of focus in the space on information uh, and, and just providing a blevy of information to, to, to individuals and to institutions in the space, whereas our focus is really on taking that information and making it actionable. So Guy, let me pose a question to you because Josh said something quite interesting, and I'm not sure how you think of this, but he says crypto doesn't have any fundamental drivers uh, of demand, right? There's nothing, there's no fundamentals. Do you agree with that statement? And if you do, or if you don't tell us what, you know, what really does drive crypto price action? If there are no dividends or earnings or stock splits to really trade off of. I, I think Bitcoin is a movement. Bitcoin is part of a movement and the people who were early contributors to the protocol, the, the, the people who were notified by it, by Satoshi Nakamoto, they were trying to build something like this for decades. They were trying to figure out a way to basically exit current financial systems create some, something that's pseudo-anonymous that would allow people to freely transact outside of the realms of government, outside of the realms of regulators uh, as a way to, to accomplish some sort of a you know, libertarian utopia in a way. So, so Bitcoin is, is a movement and, and the, the reason you had so many smart people already uh, ready to get going on this, ready to contribute, ready to... to, to to do what's necessary to try to build it is what gave it value. Um, and, and still, uh, I believe, is, is the driver behind this. And so, uh, you know, to your, to your question, I think that is the, that is the, the fundamental asset, or, or sorry, the fundamental, I would say, driver behind the success of, of Bitcoin and this industry as a whole. And, but if you try to look at it as 
an asset class in traditional financial um, kind of analytics uh, lenses, you you would remiss uh, the the understanding what is happening here because I I think that in a traditional sense there there are no fundamentals here there are no fundamentals here it's it's something that is completely different it's an uncorrelated asset there is no quarterly reports to to you know like a, like a uh, like a publicly traded company there's no team there's no centralized org that you can evaluate. Uh, really the best predictor, not the fundamental, but the best predictor to price movement is what Josh is working on, which is sentiment analysis, which has been proven to be, I would say, the best available predictor for a price movement. But there are no fundamentals here. The the real fundamental here is a group of people who believe in a different future, who created this, who contributed this, and they trust this uh, to be... uh, uh, just a better way to for, for for society to deal with money. And more and more people believe that this is indeed the case. And this is why we see Bitcoin being successful after so many years and still around and still going strong. Yeah. In fact, I would even say that the number one fundamental metric in crypto and Bitcoin is people. People simply look at how many user wallets are there. Are they active? And that's what makes people excited or that's what makes them disinterested is how many people are involved in this. And we've seen some very powerful people get involved in this past quarter. We saw Paul Tudor Jones announced that he's actually involved in Bitcoin. He's one of the biggest investors in the world. We saw one of the biggest uh, VCs in the world, Andreessen Horowitz, raise another half billion dollar Bitcoin fund. With a B? With a B. That's right. Billion. 550 million is how much they raised. That was over their initial goal. So with those two things, there are so many reasons to be excited about Bitcoin. Josh, what other things are you seeing that have happened in Q2 that uh, make you believe that Bitcoin's actually here to stay? It's not just a fad. Yeah, so I think you hit on you know two of the two of the bigger I would say developments for Bitcoin in, in you know this past quarter. But I think what we saw more broadly is. A, a series of iterative improvements um, to infrastructure, to support, um, you know, that, that, that have kind of laid the groundwork for this giant Bitcoin rally that we're seeing today. You know, I think when CME futures were launched in late 2017 and, and Bitcoin ran up to $20,000, I think in large part due to people's excitement about institutional interest in the space, you know, people thought there was going to be this massive, massive wave of every institution coming, traditional institutions, pensions, hedge funds, family offices. And that didn't really happen. But what we've seen happen is it's come in waves, right? And it's it's kind of, you know, trickling in, right? And, and, and we've seen a, a few more of those trickles with PayPal and Venmo, which is absolutely massive. And I'd love to have Guy talk about this in a second, um, you know, rolling out crypto buying and selling to your point, Andreessen, you know, this wasn't their first fund. This is their second fund. So they came into crypto, invest in the space very early. They were very early believers in crypto and have now doubled down with an oversubscribed fund, you know, $515 million. You know, you also have Fidelity coming out and saying, you know, a third of big institutions own crypto assets. So I think the biggest thing about Q2 is the fact that we've we've seen iterative improvements, which have added up and 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 made a massive impact. But not only that. You know, over the last few years, the biggest thing about Bitcoin is the fact that it's still here. That after all the 
shit, for lack of better words, that it's gone through, right? After the flash crash, after, you know, falling from highs of $20,000 down to $3,000, right? Going up and down after Jamie Dimon a few years ago saying that Bitcoin is a scam. After seeing articles about, you know, the US government cracking down on illicit activity in crypto. After Goldman coming out and saying cryptos are not NASA class, the fact that Bitcoin's still here and today, you know, as we're talking, it's over eleven thousand dollars. I mean, that's a that's massive, and that's a testament to the fact to everything that everybody was saying before that people believe in Bitcoin and people are the reason that crypto is here. Powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. So, so guy, tell us a little bit about from your perspective um, this this PayPal announcement. You know, they've got three hundred twenty-five million customers worldwide. Uh, you, you know, you used to work pretty closely with point of sales systems um, and merchants. Tell us a little bit about from your perspective, is this the real deal? Is this what crypto needs? Is this good? Um, overall, what's your takeaway from that? Short answer is absolutely. It is good. It is another validation. It, it, it will bring the it will bring Bitcoin and crypto in general to millions more, probably. And so, so the, the short answer is, is absolutely, this is a good thing. I believe that what happened is they saw a, com- a competitor, Cash App, being extremely successful, morphing its business model from a peer-to-peer, basically, you know, kind of payment app into a more um, holistic um, value prop that allowed its customers to also buy Bitcoin and then later uh, buy stocks. And I'm sure they saw that um, more and more of of what they used to consider is their kind of bread and butter uh, flocking to cash app and decided that they cannot stay on the fence but they have to join the party. Um, I think Venmo is is interesting in the sense that it's a a social payment app. And that would be very interesting to see the implementation of of Bitcoin purchases or trading in Venmo directly, because then your, your friends will be able to see that you just bought Bitcoin. And that potentially has uh, a lot of, um, I would say value to the industry because then more and more people would would see that their friends are buying Bitcoin or paying each other maybe even with Bitcoin, um, and and that would be I think you know immensely valuable. And lastly, I would say that it is another step in the right direction of moving the world into a into using. Uh, either Bitcoin or stable coins or you know whatever the case may be in order to transact cross border in order to be able to send money instantaneously or almost instantaneously and for a fraction of the cost that is being paid right now um, from one country to to from one country to another country I believe that that is um, kind of the key use case right now and, and Josh and I already talked more about this in terms of adoption for for uh, for this industry in the form of stable coins, but the fact that PayPal is now entering into the space will make only, in my opinion, only good things to the industry as a well. whole. Definitely, and let's talk about stable coins because when I grew up, I was not taught anything about investing. I was taught to save my money, 
And when someone told me about Bitcoin and other very volatile assets, to some people listening out there, and myself included at first, that was not attractive. That was scary. I didn't want the possibility of gambling with money that I needed to pay bills or send to my family or friends in another country. I wanted something that I knew was going to be safe and stable. So with stable coins, you've got these digital assets that are synthetic. They represent an actual dollar that's in a bank account or a vault somewhere. So their price is actually stable. But what's happened is now you've got this thing that mimics your savings account in a bank, but there are vehicles that allow you to put your stable coins to work and earn far more than a bank could ever possibly pay you because they've cut out all the middlemen. So people that are conservative with their funds and their investing can actually take part in this crypto revolution. We've seen more stable coins come online with more companies and more ways to earn in Q2 than ever before with yield farming and uh, suites of uh, different stable coins in different currencies. We saw the rise of the Celo network come online. We've seen uh, synthetics jump into you know the top 30. They're, synthesi- they're synthesizing all kinds of different assets, including US dollars. Josh, what are some of the ways that you see stable coins changing the game? And what are some companies that maybe uh, are overlooked other than, uh, you know, everyone in crypto knows what Tether is, of course. But what are some other stable coins and some other products out there that people should pay attention to? What are some ways to use stable coins to create profits in a safe manner? Yeah, so I'm actually not interested in the, the I guess, I'm not interested in the interest generating part of stable coins. I think it is great that now you can go to a, uh, you know, a centralized platform like BlockFi or like Celsius. You can lend out a stable coin, which is tethered to the value of the US dollar, and you can earn a significantly higher amount of interest on that deposit. That said, there are significant risks associated with lending your capital to centralized and decentralized finance platforms. And I'm not giving any sort of recommendations as to any individual platforms where to put your money. But in the report, what we cover is the fact that yield generation is great, but what's going to drive long-term mainstream adoption is actually foreign remittances. So if you look, you know, right now in the US, right, we're, 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 we're all sitting here in the US. I know guys in Israel, but if you want to send money to your friend on Venmo or the Cash app, it's awesome. It's super free. It's easy. You can send it 24-7. But when you're a foreign worker in a different country and you have to send money home, that's incredibly, incredibly difficult and expensive. On average, at banks across the globe, the average free to send money home is 11%. So if you're a foreign domestic worker in Hong Kong with $218 in discretionary income a month, you're sending home about $25 out of the entire $218 that you have to send home every single month. And that's a massive, massive, massive problem. And, and so if you, if you think about this, you may be like, oh, well, you know, a, a domestic worker in Hong Kong sending money back to the Philippines is not a big deal. But if you actually look at, at the industry, global remittances are a $700 billion, they're almost a trillion dollar industry global, globally. And they're, they're, they are now approaching the, to be the largest source of external financing to many of the world's developing countries. So, so there, there is more financing, you know, you know, then foreign aid, which comes through remittances, right? Then donations, which is absolutely massive, $700 billion. And, and so, you know, we've seen a movement towards 
mobile banking and mobile payments, which have reduced the cost of farter mints down to about 3%. But that's still absurdly high. And, you know, a lot of us like to talk about Bitcoin. And, you know, the original idea back in the day was Bitcoin as, uh, you know, a means of uh, a method of payment. And, we, and we've seen that there are, there are problems with that, right? You know, it's expensive to send money on the Bitcoin network. It's slow. But stable coins, on the other hand, are a massive, massive, massive opportunity. On Ethereum, you know, people complain about gas fees on Ethereum. Right now, the average gas fee on Ethereum is 35 cents, and it takes six minutes to send a transaction. 35 cents is a lot less than going to your bank and sending and paying 11% to send money back home. But not only are you able to send money back home fastly and cheaply, in many cases, foreign workers send money back home to countries with high inflation. And what they can do now is they can send money, they can send USDC, they can send USDT, hopefully eventually they can send Libra, right? And they can send all these different stable coins that don't necessarily have to be tied to the value of the US dollar. They can be tied to the value of other advanced economies. They can send that that capital home. And now all of a sudden, the, the person, you know, the family member receiving that isn't receiving a Pakistani rupee, which inflates by 20 or 30% a year. They're receiving a US dollar equivalent, and they can convert that to their local currency as, as need be. So it's an amazing system that solves an actual real world use case that isn't, you know, looking for yield. Every other use case for crypto to this point has basically been looking for yield. And we're super excited because this isn't that. So, you know, the question that you guys may have is, how does this positively affect crypto, right? Okay, it's great that somebody has some stable coin that doesn't really make any money that they're sending back home, but how does that affect crypto? Well, it does in a, in a bunch of different ways. The first way is if you look at the, if you look at the, um, the FAT protocol thesis, which was uh, proposed by Joel Manegro, who was at Union Square Ventures, now at Placeholder. Basically, the idea that when the internet was created, all the value accrued at the application layer, right? It didn't accrue at the TCP IP, HTTP, HTTP layers. It accrued at your Googles, right? And your AOLs and your Yahoo layers. But in crypto, what we're seeing is a lot of the value is accruing to the protocol level. The value is accruing to Ethereum, right? You have a lot of these networks built on Ethereum. And, you know, Chainlink is becoming absolutely massive on top of Ethereum. But Ethereum is still the dominant player, right? The, the majority of the value on the network is accruing to Ethereum. So if you believe in the fact that if a ton of stuff is built on a network, the value will accrue to the, that network token, well, then if stable coins become a $500 billion freaking industry, right? All that value is going to accrue to the networks. You know, Omni Tether is built on Bitcoin, right? And Tether is issued on Ethereum and there's a Tether issued on Tron, right? So all the value is going to accrue to that network. But beyond that, and most importantly, it's a fiat on-ramp, Right. Once people you know, start buying USDC, it is way easier for them to then convert that money into Bitcoin, right? They don't have to go onto an exchange and convert their US dollar into USDC into Bitcoin. They have that USDC to start with. And if we can capture a half a percent of global remittances, that's, two and a, or that's, that's like $3 billion a year from a half a percent of an industry that has a huge problem that this can solve. Fascinating. Just kind of touch on that same point. I saw an interesting... Uh... I guess, statistic the other day, um, whereby it showed the market capitalization of Ethereum was just finally surpassed by the market cap of all the different ERC-20 or applications built on top of Ethereum. So I've always been a proponent of the, the FAT protocol thesis as well. I thought it was a really cool idea, but seeing all the applications on top, like a, you know, an aggregate of all that, start to surpass the market cap of the the app the protocol it just has me thinking you know is is that narrative 
really as strong as we might think. Um, but anyhow, that's just a that's just a side comment. I want to kind of go do a deep dive and start looking at some of the social metrics that you guys were looking at. Um, one of the the key narratives that you guys were defining for quarter two was Bitcoin's social activity trends that are inferring institutions are coming. And so everybody in crypto is always thinking about the institutions are coming. You know, Main Street was in before Wall Street, all that kind of stuff. But you guys have more data than any other crypto company uh, in regards to social media. So tell me, Josh, what kinds of indicators did you see that institutions truly are coming? And are they just coming for Bitcoin or are they coming for anything else? Well, so I think even before, uh, you know, getting into that, I think, you know, the the last, you know, up until this point, the majority of crypto's movement has very much been driven by retail and, and retail is very much narrative driven, right? And, and social sentiment is very much narrative driven. And we kind of saw, you know, the coronavirus narrative being a massive thing for Bitcoin and, you know, Bitcoin being a hedge against inflation. But what we're seeing is kind of a decrease in, in the number of conversations around the coronavirus. And the same thing goes with the halving, right? We saw these massive inflows of conversations around, you know, the halving, you know, tweet volume went up above 50,000 tweets a day for the first time in a few years. And Bitcoin's price, you know, blew up to $11,000 or $10,500, whatever it was for a few minutes. But after that, throughout, throughout Q2, and we're obviously seeing more conversations now, given, you know, this more recent price movement above $10,000. But there really wasn't a dominant social trend that had occurred in Q2. But what we did see is the market cap of Bitcoin continued to increase, right? I think Bitcoin went up by 40% quarter over quarter without any major increase in social activity. So one metric that we've created, which is inspired by the NVT ratio from Willy Woo, is the NV tweet ratio. And basically what that does, is it takes the market cap of a coin uh, and it divides it by the 30-day average tweet volume. So basically, it looks at how the market is valuing a cryptocurrency as a multiple of its social activity. And what we saw is that Bitcoin's NV tweet ratio increased by 71% over Q2 uh, to basically an all-time high. So in other words, now people are valuing Bitcoin at the highest multiple of the number of people talking about it than ever before. And to us... That, that's kind of a sign, you know, in conjunction with like Bitcoin options, open interest, you know, blowing up that institutions are here, right? This isn't purely a retail driven rally. You know, we see it with Paul Tudor Jones and with Andreessen and with others and with Rentech have filings saying that they're, you know, now touching crypto. You know, the fact that it's not just, you know, a retail social media driven rally, there's actually some institutions here, which is kind of being proven in the data by the fact that, you know, there isn't a spike in, in social conversations coinciding with this, this rise in price. Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. 
So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting-edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cognetwork is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. Let's talk about uh, just retail because the world's already on to Bitcoin. Us here in the U.S., we've, we've got the U.S. dollar. People think, well, do we really even need Bitcoin? Well, for the very first time, a lot of people are waking up to this idea after the government's printing literally trillions of dollars out of thin air that's backed by nothing. They're saying, hey, maybe Bitcoin was right about this. Guy, what inflows are you seeing over the eToro uh, ever since the first stimulus package came out? I mean, when it comes to retail investing, eToro is as, as a household name as anything is. What are you seeing over there in terms of new users? Uh, and what kind of features are they asking for in terms of support and, and education? That's a great question. I think what we saw globally is, and, and by the way, I just wanted to, to kind of premise the answer is that globally, eToro did a massive marketing push this year around our Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition, and it has AI self-learning chips, so the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery, and it lasts around four months, but don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice, and also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording. Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, commission-free stock trading uh, offering. And so we were promoting this very aggressively outside of the U.S. and, um, and, and, and asking people to, to join eToro and trade, trade stocks commission-free in, you know, in more than 100 countries where we are, when, when we are, uh, where we are live. So that was, um, that was done, and, but still at the end of Q2, we still saw that the most po- or the most traded asset at Etoro globally is Bitcoin. It's still Bitcoin. So people came in, they uh, because of the uh, the commission-free stock trading offering. Uh, so they may bought Tesla, they may bought you know some other some other stock, but they still bought Bitcoin. And I feel that that is because um, this a younger generation is aware of the risk of inflation, is aware of uh, what's happening with money printing and governments worldwide being, you know, some, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, irresponsible with regards to monetary policy. Right. And they just buy the asset because they have some sort of an understanding that this is a hedge, some sort of a hedge. Maybe they are not, you know, uh, very sophisticated investors, but they get it at, on the on, on a very high level, and so they buy the asset. They believe that this is this is a hedge. They believe that they can also get some alpha uh, because it's an uncorrelated asset, and so there you know the, the possibility of returns might be there. Um, so we still see Bitcoin as the most popular asset on Etoro, and that that to me is 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 fascinating. And, and I, I'd love to add to that. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, just look at how badly the U.S. government has botched the coronavirus response. Why do you trust them with your money? Right. Like, I mean, you know, we're printing trillions and 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 trillions of dollars. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how many times I said it, but that's I mean, it's it's an unbelievable amount of money. You know, the, the you know, governments around the, the globe, especially the U.S., has completely botched this. You know, our our you know our our Congress can't agree on anything, right? And 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 look, you know, I still have most of my money in U.S. dollars, right? And I, I think you know that that's still probably you know the the more I guess responsible thing that that the average person w- would say. But that said, you know, I have a a percentage of my capital in Bitcoin because it makes sense as a hedging asset, right? It makes sense. To hold a you know a, a, an, a, an amount of money uh, in Bitcoin because it has you know the it has you know over the last you know in its lifetime been the best performing asset and has continually you know in twenty twenty you know twenty twenty for example outperformed the S and P five hundred outperformed gold outperformed the Nasdaq outperformed other stocks right so um, you know there, there's a big argument to be made and, and reason why people are putting their money in Bitcoin and 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 you know potentially other digital assets. Fascinating. I think that's spot on, man. I and just like a little anecdote, um, a, a lot of the times people, you know, for the past, you know, three four years that you know, 
crypto has kind of been, you know, I guess exposed to the mainstream. Everybody in my family or my friends or my girlfriend, you know, they always discounted it until March of 2020 when they started saying to me, well, where does money come from? Well, how does the, what does it mean that the government's printing trillions of dollars? Well, where's the government getting all of this money from for stimulus and all that kind of stuff? And then when it was happening in real time, they finally woke up and said, oh, I get it. I get why like you like Bitcoin so much because it's immune to this whole idea of, uh, of money printing. So that's just a thing that I think hits home for a lot of people. So I'm glad that we could kind of harp on that for a little while. But moving on to, to, to DeFi, um, I know, you know DeFi is surging. Pizza Mine knows DeFi is surging. But some people are completely in the dark on this. I want to ask you, Josh, how big is DeFi compared to the actual real traditional financial space and kind of paint it as a backdrop of you know how how early we are for anybody who's investing in DeFi? Yeah, so I don't know if my my DeFi answers are the answers you guys are gonna want to hear. Uh, given 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 the backdrop of that question. Look, DeFi is is very, very small. Um, it is negligible compared it is all of defi is smaller than paul tudor jones's net worth just for perspective right it, all it's 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 one percent of 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 you know of um of uh jeff bezos's net worth right defi is tiny right it, it there's not it's nothing in comparison to the rest of uh you know the traditional financial system that said it is absolutely surging right uh total value locked in defi protocols went up by 150 percent in q2 um, if we look at you know mentions of DeFi in in cryptocurrency headlines, uh, DeFi was actually the fifth most mentioned topic in cryptocurrency publications uh, in Q2. So it was Bitcoin, crypto, Ethereum, blockchain, and then DeFi in terms of mentions in in headlines. So it has become a very 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 large part of the conversation within the crypto community, and we're seeing that with um, you know with balancer and with curve and with you know yfi and with you know all these you know decentralized you know finance you know protocols that are just you know seeing these massive bull runs and going up in some cases by a hundred thousand percent in like a week which doesn't make any sense but that's a different story um but but anyways you know DeFi is growing it's seeing this massive surge but it is it is in a very small community right if you look at you know DeFi is the fifth most mentioned word in crypto publications but there were only Four total news stories from all publications that were not crypto related mentioning DeFi in Q2. Just four. For comparison, there were 200 mentioning Bitcoin. So it is still a very, very small percentage of, 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 of you know, the space. And if we look at, you know, at the end of Q2, for example, there were only 7,000 active addresses holding Compound. You know, the, the market cap surged to $502 million, but it was, it was you know, 7,000 active addresses. And in many cases, holders will, will have, you know, multiple addresses. And I'm sure you guys have multiple addresses for some of your tokens, right? So it is still a very, very small community. There are f- st- still very legitimate concerns with the community. You know, the fact that a lot of this code is not audited. These protocols have been hacked. I mean, I think we, 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 we pulled the data in our quarterly report. Balancer was hacked on June 29th. There was a hack on June 18th. There was a hack on April 27th. There was DeForce lost $25 million on April 19th. There was another hack on April 19th. I mean, that's five major DeFi hacks just in Q2. So there are serious concerns. You know, with yield farming, there are great ways of, of 
earning ridiculous amounts of interest, but the risks have to be taken into consideration. And also the fact that it is not easy to access these platforms, and Katie kind of talks about that uh, in the report, you know, it's, it's not easy to onboard to a DeFi platform. So I, I am not of the opinion that this is, this is mainstream. I'm more of the opinion that this is a bubble. Right. And that's, that is actually pretty close to the answer I was looking for. I was just trying to show how small this segment of the industry really is. There's so much growth opportunity. I don't know. What do you think, Pete? Yeah. Now, if you wanted to have your money double in Amazon stock, it's already worth like what, a hundred trillion dollars or something like that? It's like a trillion and a half. A trillion and a half. It would have to go up another trillion dollars. That's basically Fed printing level for it to double. But in DeFi, for it to double, that could literally happen overnight and sometimes does. So yes, there are risks associated with it, uh, with using the platforms, but there's lots of tokens that you can simply buy and hold um, in your own wallet, in your own custody as well, and take advantage of some of this growth. Um, And that's why Bitcoin's so attractive, I think, to people of our generation. It has much more opportunity to grow from less than 1% adoption to actually becoming part of the rest of the world. And I think hopefully we're going to see that pretty soon. Guy, what are your thoughts coming from uh, Etor over there on the DeFi movement? Are there, is this technology rather than the crazy yields, but is this technology something that uh, a huge centralized platform like Etoro could potentially integrate somewhere down the line what do you find interesting about all the different things that people are doing in DeFi? Right. So, so yes, I think eToro is fundamentally uh, building bridges between the old world and the new world. We're part of enabling that transition uh, into a world that would, I believe, inevitably would be uh, would be decentralized. So, with all, all these. Uh, basically, the hopes and dreams of those who are currently building DeFi projects is where we would eventually go. I, I saw a, a talk by Balaji Srinivasan on, on, uh, on, at Stanford where he talked about you know, the, ultimate eg- the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate exit of Silicon Valley. So you can, he, you know, to, to make it short, he, may, he said... You can either, if you want to innovate, you can either try to have a voice that is to work within a system, or you can just exit and just don't worry about the system, just create something completely new and completely independent. So eToro, we, you know, we're a regulated financial entity. We are playing by the rules. We're regulated in multiple countries. We are trying to have a voice, and that is to work with regulators, work with governments, you know, work our way in within the system and innovate um, by providing, uh, you know, all these kind of cool products and features that, that we've built throughout the years, but, but from within the system in partnership with uh, stakeholders. I think DeFi is, is the ultimate exit uh, from the existing financial system. Is that they're not worried about, you know, the OCC. They're not worried about New York DFS. They're not worried about regulators or lawmakers. They're just trying to create something that no one can control And that, I believe, completes the vision of what uh, Bitcoin was trying to do. Basically, it's an exit from the existing rails uh, that is completely censorship resistant. No one can touch it. No one can manipulate it. I believe that these 
that Bitcoin and you know the inevitable winner or multiple winners in DeFi are complementary, and people would eventually be able to uh, using again using pseudo anonymous identities participate in in an economy that is much more sophisticated, much more uh, uh, um, innovative, uh, with new capabilities, new opportunities. Uh, and without worrying about existing stakeholders uh, trying to get in the way because no one really controls that. I think that is the that speaks directly to what the peoples that started uh, Bitcoin were all about. So I, I agree with with that general you know thesis that guy laid out. I think you know the the, the bigger concern that I have here, and, and this is why I think stable coins are so exciting, is is the fact that we need, to bring in more retail. We need more fiat on-ramps. We need to, to, to attract new people into the space. And we, when we have DeFi protocols, you know, getting hacked five times in a quarter, that, that kind of, you know, is a, a bad look for crypto, right? And, and, you know, these are not platforms that are necessarily easy to use. Um, these are not platforms that, you know, um, you know, have, have giant user bases. And while I think in theory, they are nice, I think they are still very, very early. And right now the people that are using it are, are very much VCs that have put their money in, in, in a lot of these things have gotten in earlier than others and are just taking money from one place and bring it to another and plopping it back and forth, back and forth, making a ton of money off of retail and then running. Um, and I think it's still really early. I think that likely we have under 20,000 total DeFi users in the entire world, you know, as opposed to tens or twenties, you know, million people that are actively holding and interacting with Bitcoin. Very interesting perspective. Um, let's hop on over to some of the trends and rankings of these different coins that you were spotting uh, for Q2. So I want to know what were some of like, you know, at a high level, you know, what was the strongest coin of Q2? And what was it that was really um, a standout in that? Did you see, you know, there were more investors in there or there was just bigger money behind it? And what was really driving this? Maybe Josh could field this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first one is Cardano, right? I mean, Cardano has, you know, the, you know Shelly coming, coming soon. And so Cardano went up by 175% um, this quarter. But I mean, you know, it depends on the metric, right? Um, you know, something which is awesome and, and definitely want to highlight, you know, to Guy and the rest of eToro's team credit is the fact that Bitcoin saw over 900,000 new followers on eToro this quarter, which is wild. Um, that's on one platform. Uh, you know, eToro is obviously a massive platform and Guy, correct me if I'm wrong, with, you know, somewhere in the realm of 13 million global users. Uh, but 14 nine, already, yeah. 14 already? Yeah. Every time, every time I mention it, it goes up by a million. At a million, baby. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so you know, 900,000 people now following Bitcoin and actually 900,000 people followed ETH too. So it's not just Bitcoin. So to highlight kind of both those, but if we look at, you know, if we look, if we look at social trends, for example, um, let me pull it up here. Um, in terms of tweet volumes, there are actually four coins on eToro that saw spikes. First being Dash, then Cardano, Litecoin, and Stellar. Uh, we're the only four coins that saw spikes, um, but but across the board, I mean, some interesting you know facts. One being Tezos was the only coin on eToro that saw a a higher percentage of eToro users investing in this quarter than the prior quarter, and that should obviously be caveated. And I think Guy did this well earlier with the fact that eToro has made a global 
uh, marketing effort, you know, focused on uh, commission-free equity trading, which is why you know people may have moved to trading Tesla and other assets. But Tezos saw a seventy-five percent increase on followers on Etoro this past quarter, and it was the only coin on Etoro that had more investors than the prior quarter. So, thing to note as well. Wow, that, that makes me think. You know, when you see the boat get loaded up like that with so many new followers, is that a good signal of you know maybe a trend continuation? Got, got more investors behind it, more excitement, or maybe a trend top, right? Everybody is getting into that currency, seeing in the past, you know, that price has risen so hard and so fast in, you know, Q4 and Q1, that maybe uh, the top is in for that. You just don't know. Well, I mean, think about it this way, right? If each of those users is putting a thousand bucks in, that's a billion dollars in new capital into Bitcoin just on eToro in a quarter. That's massive. That's nuts. All right. This question is posed to everyone here, but we're going to start with you, Guy. What are your predictions for Q3? Not necessarily in terms of price, but what are the trends that you think are going to unfold this quarter? So one thing that I would like to highlight is how much good can one person do when it comes to regulation and legislation, if they're at the right place at the right time. So, uh, you know, Brian Brooks going over to the OCC and then the OCC subsequently issuing a letter saying that banks, U.S. banks, um, which I believe enjoy, you know, pr probably the most trust globally, um, maybe Swiss banks a bit more, right? But, but still, um, can, can custody crypto for their customers is is just a, uh, it's just a testament for how badly we need more people in these positions to to do the right thing. So um, I, I won't say a prediction, but I would say that if during Q3, given the fact that Jay Clayton is about to vacate his seat to uh, go serve in the Southern District of New York, and uh, if Hester Pierce will, Pierce will be nominated to be the, uh, the chairman or the chairwoman, then I think that, I mean, she won't have a lot of time to do a lot by the, by the time we'll have uh, the elections. But if she will be nominated, I think that uh, shortly thereafter, you will see more institutional investors be more confident uh, in crypto in general and formalizing their strategies with regards to the space. They will just have more comfort because of what I predict to be very positive statements about this space and about Bitcoin ETF and all sorts of other things coming out that, that I think it, it will make a very big difference in, in the institutional space with regards to crypto. And then, you know, subsequently, obviously, with retail investors in the US, but also globally, uh, uh, given her uh, proposal for safe harbor, uh, for for SDOs and, and you know and, and things of that nature. So I I think that's in the cards. I would say the chances are good, and if that would happen, I I see just a, a a lot of really kind of positive moves in the in the you know it, similarly to to what happened with the OCC uh, at the SEC and and therefore projecting for the rest of the market and the rest of the world. To get to get into crypto, yeah. So you know, I think Guy is totally spot on there. 
Um, you know, one thing that that I want to add, and that's kind of interesting in context of the the movement that we've seen the last two days. I just looked at what the most frequently used word on Twitter was surrounding Bitcoin, and it's gold again today. Um, and sixty eight percent of those tweets are positive. So when Bitcoin is used in the same context as gold, sixty eight percent of the time say that's been positive. With over you know fifty thousand overall tweets mentioning Bitcoin. Um, you know, there were 3000 of those that also mentioned gold. So it, it's, it's becoming a big part of the narrative. And something that we didn't see in Q2 was Bitcoin behaving risk off, right? Bitcoin and the S&P 500 in June, for example, moved in the same direction on 62% of days. And if you compare that to the S&P and gold, the S&P and gold only moved in the same direction 35% of the time. That said, what we saw was Bitcoin sentiment and gold sentiment being the most correlated that they've ever been. So in other words, on the same days, investors were positive about Bitcoin and positive about gold. And likewise, you know, on, on the same days, investors were negative about Bitcoin and negative about gold. And I think that the stock market really hasn't made much sense. Um, you know, this, you know, this, this, this past quarter, right? You know, when Davy Day Trader can go pick out three letters from a Scrabble bag, <laughs> buy any freaking stock and the stock goes up by 20%. That doesn't make any sense, right? That fundamentally doesn't make any sense. I think there's going to be some form of correction in the stock market because our economy cannot be struggling so badly where, you know, no gyms are open and people aren't flying on airplanes and, you know, you can't, you know, like there's nothing. There's nothing. You can't go out to a freaking bar. Right. You can't do anything. And the stock market is, you know, at highs, right? It, it fundamentally doesn't make any sense. And I think there is inevitably going to be some form of correction. And I think the fact that investors are starting to look at Bitcoin as a digital gold, you know, that is going to be massively bullish for Bitcoin. And once the market starts correcting and all this new, you know, all these new retail users on platforms like eToro that have come in and started with equity, equity trading, I think a lot of them are then going to go towards crypto. And I think that is going to be the most bullish development of Q3 and Q4 looking forward is the fact that the stock market makes no freaking sense. It has to at some point correct itself, uh, and Bitcoin is just waiting there, um, and 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 it's, it's ready. I just want to add to that. I think there's the, my hypothesis with regards to why gold and Bitcoin are so correlated in terms of uh, sentiment is because the there there are basically there are there's a group of young people or younger generations. And when they think about inflation and when they think about hedging, they think about Bitcoin and, and then there are older generations, right? Baby boomers and the like. And when they are concerned about inflation, they are flocking to gold. And when they're thinking, they're basically trying to solve the same problem, but using two different things. And so eToro, um, which is kind of millennial, millennial friendly, where in, that, that's our kind of target audience. We are looking for these, um, you know, young investors, millennial investors to come in and, and trade. We are there to satisfy the demand for hedging against inflation and for, you know, for, for seeking that, that um, uncorrelated asset uh, to, to, to that type or to those, to those type of, of folks. But when it comes to older uh, people, they are flocking into gold. I think that at the end of the day, once things will get, and I hope it won't happen, but once things, things will get ugly, um, you will see that generational shift. You will see sentiment being correlated, but you, was, you would see the action being different. 
for older people and younger people. Older will go and buy gold. Younger millennials will go and buy Bitcoin. I think that's exactly what's going to happen, actually. That's a very, very, very well said. Um, and to kind of close us out here, uh, I, one of my favorite parts of the report was from the quarterly contributors. Um, and you guys had some people speak about uh, you know, on-chain trends. Uh, and we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about that before we get out of here. We had you guys uh, speak about Telegram settlement and kind of the future of cryptocurrency enforcement. And then we, we had a conversation, or, or you, I should say you guys had a conversation with Justin Sun of Tron. So, uh, Guy, pick one of those three quarterly contributors that you really, really you know, liked and had some standout impressions from. Um, and, and what are some takeaways there? So I actually, I actually want to talk about, you know, uh, uh, Justin and, 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 and Tron. Uh, as you know, there was a, um, not so long ago, uh, Justin and Yoni, our founder and CEO, were sharing lunch with Warren Buffett. And this is after Justin, you know, won the, uh, um, you know, the, the opportunity to, to do that by making a donation and so on and so forth. And I think that it, it was interesting to see just this group of uh, crypto you know, pioneers kind of congregating together with Warren Buffett and talking about investing and trading. And I think that, um, I, I think Justin too understands, uh, much like you know, Yoni understands, is how, how do we bridge these two worlds together? How do we make something like Tron and how do we make something like Itoro help bridge those two things together? And so I think that the, the perspective of, of Justin in, in terms of how, how he sees the world, but also understanding the importance of bringing people like Warren Buffett into the table, bringing people from you know, traditional finance into uh, understanding the value of what, what is what is being contemplated here is, you know, is so important. Um, so I really appreciate the fact that he contributed. I, I really appreciate the fact that he invited Yoni to join him to the, um, uh, to that lunch. And I think we will continue to see that not just from Justin and from Toro, but from, from other uh, market participants who are really trying to, you know, get that, get those bridges be built and once they are built, then you can see that that giant, I think, transformation that we're all, you know, hoping for from traditional rails into new rails, from the old world into new world. And it's just going to, you know, make everyone's lives a whole lot better. So um, I just wanted to make that general statement about Justin. Yeah. And, and, and look, I think we're giving away a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the good and the meat in the report. So I, I don't want to dive too, too far into, into depth on the quarterly contributor sections. Cause I think they all deserve a, a full and, and proper read through. Um, you know, George from Crowell does a really good, good job at talking about what the telegram, uh, you know, settlement means for future cryptocurrency enforcement actions. Uh, and, and I, I really like what Philip Gradwell of Chainalysis, you know, did in terms of going in a deep dive on, you know, into on-chain data. There's a, you know, I guess a couple points that I'll pull out from there. Um, the first is just the supply of each of the top five cryptocurrencies, which haven't moved in over 52 weeks. And something interesting that he pulled out was the fact that 56% of Bitcoin hasn't moved in a year. 
Um, 63% of Bitcoin cash hasn't moved in a year. 62% of Litecoin hasn't moved in a year. 54% of ETH hasn't moved in a year, but only 3% of USDT hasn't moved in a year, which means that, you know, people are holding these assets. Um, you know, in the case of Bitcoin, 56% of the, the, the asset not moving means people are holding it and, you know, believing in it as a store of value. Whereas, you know, I think, you know, to the point earlier that we made about stable coins are USDT is clearly just a better payment mechanism, which is why only 3% of the supply is, um, you know, hasn't been moved in over a year. I don't know why you'd be sitting on USDT for that long in a cold wallet, really. Um, but, you know, teach his own forgotten private keys. Exactly. It's probably that, honestly. Um, yeah, but but lots of really interesting things there. And, you know, there's also a, a really great section where we brought on, um, you know, the managing editor of Cointelegraph magazine. Uh, you know, we brought on the CEO of Crypto Slate, the managing editor of Crypto Briefing. We've asked, you know, them and, you know, a bunch of other people in the industry about, you know, the biggest threats and opportunities to Bitcoin. And, you know, they go into a lot more depth than we're obviously going to have time here. So definitely go check check out the, uh, you know, the report. It's called the Thai Quarterly on eToro. If you search for it on Google, I think that's the easiest way to find it. Um, but yeah, just, just you know, kind of throwing that in there and making sure everybody who contributed gets, you know, their, their fair share. Awesome. Well, Josh, Guy, we could not thank you enough uh, for spending this last entire full hour with us today to talk about the awesome state of crypto uh, Q2 report that you guys put together. When I was going through it, I was my jaw was on the floor the entire time. So guys, I highly, highly, highly recommend you go to our friends eToro.com uh, and, and sponsor as well. Uh, go over to eToro.com, find the quarterly report and fill up that head with a ton of knowledge. You guys will not be disappointed. Uh, Guy, we hope you have a great evening over in Israel. And Josh, I hope you have an, a wonderful day down here in Southern California. Take care. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.